Welcome to Antimatterpod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today we're discussing depictions of depression in Star Trek. This will probably include suicide and self-harm, so if those topics are rough for you or you're simply not in the mood, just go listen to something else. We don't mind. Your mental health and general comfort is more important than our dumb podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Very true. Yeah. (laughs) As my therapist said to me. Anyway. You made a list. I love it when you make lists because you think of things that don't even occur to me. So let's go chronologically. Let's follow our list this time for a change. Okay. Okay. No jumping around. Very good. Yeah. Pattern definitely evolves. It quickly emerges. So I'm counting the early years as basically all of TOS. So TOS, TAS, and the films. Yes. The original series, the animated series, and the original series films. Yes. Sorry, I was like, maybe I shouldn't use acronyms. I mean, they were perfectly comprehensible to me. Presumably if someone is listening to a Star Trek podcast, they know the acronyms, but still. Mm. Our podcast editing software definitely doesn't. So your note here, counselor on the ship, is that in reference to Dr. Elizabeth Dana, the great missed opportunity of the original series? It in fact is, yes. yes. And the reason I mention it, I know that it is important mainly to me and maybe a handful of other people like me. Mm-hmm. And most people just think of her as Gary Mitchell's girlfriend. Those people are wrong. I started my master's final paper with the idea that it was important that. Elizabeth Daner is in the first episode, non the cage mm. version of Star Trek, the first one with Kirk, the mm. machismo man, and Gary Mitchell, the even more machismo <laughs> man. It was part of my thesis that because of Gene Roddenberry's experiences in the military and as a pilot, that he would be caught up in the idea of soldiers who have post-traumatic stress. I'm obviously not saying that Gene Roddenberry did, but that there was the pattern of of soldiers, soldiers, pilots, you know, it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to be in the military. You can be a first responder of any kind Mm. and you see a lot of trauma and it affects you and it affects the way you see the world. And he put a counselor on the bridge in Mm. his utopian space future show. Right. And I think that that is meaningful. Yes. Even though Dr. Dana is explicitly a psychiatrist who is researching the effect of space travel on men, I believe she says, but her presence there is still important. She's still a mental health professional. And your note is the bad moral trope actually about PTS. I was going to talk about the the fact that the generation making Star Trek at the time were either World War II veterans or not far removed. And a lot of them had probably lived through the Korean War. And so they understood that, yes, there's this upcoming generation of, you know, astronauts, but the generation before them are actually carrying a lot of trauma and 
you know, we talk about the greatest generation, the generation, not the podcast, uh, as being incredibly stoic and powerful. But we also know from our own grandparents that really a lot of them carried a lot of a lot of trauma and didn't necessarily handle it well. Same with the Korean War. And so I, I do think that that sort of was sort of in the back of the minds of the writers as they write this generation ahead of Kirk who are basically mostly batshit crazy. I believe that's the sensitive and proper psychological term. <laughs> right, exactly. And they, in in true batshit crazy man fashion, hmm. take it out on entire planets. Right, and this made so much sense to me when we had Discovery and we learned that there was this war ten years earlier. And I spent half of season one of Disco thinking that this was the crew's perspective when their captain goes crazy and declares himself a god or tries to wrestle a computer or whatever. You know, Lorca's just was just a forerunner. Obviously I was wrong there, but I do think that it was a reasonable take. Absolutely. Everybody was quote-unquote tricked into believing that Lorca's story was that he had seen too much. Yeah. That he was too traumatized and he was reverting to anger and that stoicism mm. and not dealing with his feelings in any way. Yeah. There is a reason why I ship Lorca with Captain Matthew Decker of, I think it's a doomsday machine, but he captained the constellation, which is eaten by a space thing and basically loses it in an attempt to get revenge for the death of his crew. I don't ship them by accident. There's a reason. Mm, mm, I'm really not a subtle person. Do you draw a distinction between depression as a standalone mental health condition and depression as a symptom of another problem, whether that's trauma or bipolar disorder or something else? I would say yes. So depression can be a symptom of something larger, but you would be diagnosed with bipolar mm. or, or post-traumatic stress or a personality disorder. But a major depressive instance would be depression that hits you and takes you and forces you out of your routine, mm. but is not an ongoing. Yeah, someone who is bipolar is always bipolar. Right, right. They might be going through depression, they might be going through mania, they might be medicated and not having any episodes. Mm. But a major depressive episode is something that happens and hopefully you can recover from it. It's the difference between Janeway in Night and Balana in her whole arc. Right, exactly. Not to jump ahead, but... <laughs> you're jumping, you're doing it. You're I'm doing, doing it, I'm This is why we it. always go. Yeah. But yes, so I would absolutely say that depression is a separate thing. Although, of course, they're all interlinked and related. Very few people only have one diagnosis. Mm. It's usually a, a cocktail of diagnoses and, you know, one or the other might be more strong or something that you're mm. going through more at a time. So it's complicated. Mental health and mental illness is very complicated. So we really can't just carve out the trauma responses and go, they don't count for the purpose of this episode. Right. I, you know, we're, we don't need to discuss the bad morals in depth. <laughs> we, we've said enough about them, but I do, I did want to mention it because 
my note here is that it's an implicit storyline in mm. TOS that they never say, hey, these admirals are depressed and that's why they're acting crazy mm. and literally taking over planets and, and forcing their point of view on everyone or driving their starship into a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> because I do think that those storylines are about mental illness without anyone saying they're about mental illness. Right. If nothing else, it was the 60s and the stigma was strong. Likewise, yes. Spock's identity crises are a metaphor for lots of things, but I do think that I am having a lot of feelings and I don't know how to process them and so I'm going to shut down entirely is maybe a mood for a lot of people, especially people yes. dealing with depression. Like if you have a whole maelstrom of feelings that you cannot and will not express, sooner or later they're just going to turn into a big grey mass of sadness. It's like mixing paint. Are the Vulcans clinically depressed? Well... <laughs> now, I was particularly thinking, I mean, he goes through many mm. identity crises, but especially like in the motion picture, when he is trying to cut off all mm. feelings and go in for Colinar, which it should surprise no one, I am fully against. Yes. But <laughs> that's okay. Like, if that's their choice, and I'm not going to force my opinions on them, but in general, I don't find it very healthy. And he can't. Mm. He can't, and he he doesn't. And then he runs away, basically. He runs away from his choices on Vulcan and runs to his previous life on the Enterprise, but they also don't really connect with him in the same way because he's gone through this episode. Mm where he's, he's not quite himself. And then he goes into space and he sees a beautiful space cloud that talks to him, <laughs> you know, like you do. And he becomes both old Spock and new Spock. Yeah. And I think that's a very, it's a really good metaphor for someone who was trying different medications or different therapists or different ways of dealing with their depression. Mm. And it's hard for their friends because they don't recognize them anymore. And their family is like, why can't you just be more Vulcan? Yep. And at the end, you have to accept yourself and and move past all of that yes. in order to become you know, fully healed and, and in order to really even get to your recovery stage. And then when we meet him back up with him in mm. Wrath of Khan, he is so healthy. He is thriving. Such a, such a great <laughs> version of Spock. You're making me want to rewatch the motion picture and I'm mad about it. But then it's interesting that after his death and resurrection, it's like he hit the ultimate low point and then went through a very sort of classic psychotherapy phase of literally being a child again and growing up and experiencing a new adolescence it's extremely 80s when i put it in those terms but i kind of love it yeah it's again it's it can be a metaphor for so many things spock 
mm. Spock's mm. entire character arc, which is why he's so popular and why so many people see themselves in him, despite... I don't know very many people who are very Vulcan. No, no. But so many people see different ideas mm. in Spock and respond to it. And so this was one that I see that I, that exactly he goes through different cycles yeah. throughout those movies. And it's really interesting to map that onto the idea of mental health. And then Kirk goes through periods of depression as he confronts his mortality and the aging process. And I think that's a really realistic thing. As you age, as you enter and pass through middle age, you're losing friends, your body is breaking down, you're not the person that you used to be. And the thing is, and I think I've said this before, growing up is a process that takes an entire lifetime. And middle age seems as difficult in some ways as adolescence in terms of moving through phases of your life. And God, adolescence was terrible. I feel like middle age is probably better, but I don't fault Kirk for having moments of realizing that he is changing and his life is changing and mourning who he used to be, even if he recognizes, as he often does, that he is a better person now. And he's thinking about his legacy and what he wants to leave behind. And there's just a lot of baggage that he's mm. carrying around from all the things you know he's thinking about what might have been or having regrets and and that's super healthy <laughs> you, yeah yeah you're you're absolutely right to compare it to adolescence because it is that same switch over you know i i love coming of age as an adult mm. stories mm. and i think that because coming of age doesn't happen only in adolescence then you also you know, get to middle age and then you, mm, you have to get mm. to the next phase and that's another journey. And I don't think that Kirk really goes through depression exactly. He doesn't mm. have a depressive episode, but I do think that he is dealing with a lot of emotions and mm. he's, they might be a little unbalanced and it's a, it's a really good arc for him from yeah. like two through six is a a nice even into generations there's a sense through all of the movies and it culminates there that he is avoiding depression by keeping busy he's always doing Mm. something he's always saving people and almost his worst fear is having to stop and think about what his life is and what he needs to be and he there's a sense that he's he would not be happy if he had to really confront that And hence his Matrix fantasy is being able to stop and being happy. That's a good point. I hate Generation, so I forget that movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good job making it seem, you know, like a good story. (laughs) Then we hit the 90s and the counsellor on the bridge. And I remember this was perceived as a really 80s thing, you know. You have your therapist right with you on hand. (laughs) I think particularly an 80s LA thing because that wasn't really common across America at the time. Yeah, I, I was going to say, that's not how it was in Connecticut, but mm. you know, but maybe maybe your 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but the 90s, which encompasses the next generation, mm. all the way through the next generation films, Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Yes. And it starts with 
Deanna being a main character. It's absolutely true that we don't get enough of Deanna doing counseling and what we do isn't great. No. <laughs> but the fact that she's there, mm. again, is important to me that that then this was still Gene Roddenberry because he had a hand in the beginning of the next generation. I think he particularly championed Deanna as a character. Look, I'm saying something nice about Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> but just as having the counselor exist in TOS mm -hmm. is one thing, and then having the counselor as a main character in TNG, that's like a progression. But it also, it goes from implicit storylines about mental illness and mental health to explicit storylines mm. about mental illness and mental health. I think there are quite a few examples of this. Certainly Picard's post-Locutus arc, which yes. is all the way through Picard. Yes. It's an, it's an ongoing arc. We're still there. <laughs> He's still dealing with that, which is completely reasonable. But it definitely is, it's a long-term mm. arc dealing with specific trauma and how that continues to affect Picard throughout his life. Yes. Um, and, you know, not to jump ahead, but we, we also in, in Picard realize that he's had these traumas since a child, mm. since he was, since childhood. And... Therefore, he's been dealing with that emotional imbalance forever, and yeah. it's shaped him in ways. He is the one who says in season two of Picard that depression can be a fatal illness in humans. And looking back and applying that to TNG, I start to wonder if part of the reason he valued Counselor Troy so much is because he understood that. And we often see, you know, one-off scenes of Deanna counselling a crewman who has lost a partner or who is dealing with depression in some way. And it's it's usually a one and done. And then we have an episode like The Loss where I think some space aliens cause her to lose her empathic abilities. And it's in part a disability metaphor, but it's also a depression metaphor and I think it's a really good depiction of Deanna's depression and she as a mental health professional is still sad and she's angry and she's mean to people because she feels like she's been treated badly herself. I think that's a really realistic depiction and obviously you know TNG it's done in 45 minutes and her powers come back. But it is a really yeah it's a really good showcase for mm. both the character and the actress and the idea of that loss yeah. and I, I love the fact that it's called the, the loss. loss it's yeah. very it, like I you know there's you said there's many it, let's introduce this character and then talk about how grief is affecting them yes. for 45 minutes way too many of them are children and then there's Luexana in her episode where we find out that she was so depressed that she didn't even tell Deanna all of this backstory mm. about her childhood. And I think that is, especially for someone like Luxana, who is so flamboyant yes. and so life of the party and, mm. and bright colors and just always on. Yes. For that character to go through that arc is actually very powerful. 
And we do see hints, more than a few hints, across Loxana's appearances in TNG and Deep Space Nine that she is really overcompensating and that deep down she is very unhappy and depressed and she knows it. And she can put on a good show and she can fool herself for a period, but at the end of the day she doesn't have the life she wanted and that makes her desperately sad. Obviously, the death of her child is is horrific. Yeah. But she also lost her husband. Yeah, and seems, for all that she is absolutely fixated on finding a new one, it also seems like she never got over Deanna's dad. Right. I have a lot of trouble with Loxana as a character because I don't think she treats Deanna very well. And the comedy sexual harassment, I think, is not at all girl powery. But... It has not aged well. It not really. that it was good then. No. But it definitely no. is a problem now. But I almost appreciate those nuances that, yes, she is not necessarily an entirely good person, but she is also complicated and sad and the life of the party who goes home alone. And then speaking of people who lost their spouse, we have Cisco, Cisco. who is the captain, the main mm. character of mm. Deep Space Nine, and certainly the beginning of his character arc is entirely about his grief and how he is literally running away to, to Deep Space Nine and finds that spark mm-hmm. that allows him to start living again with the help of the prophets. <laughs> I do not recommend the prophets as mental health care professionals but in this specific instance i will allow that they helped i love emissary the episode as both a character piece for cisco and a depiction of trauma and grief and depression at the same time Mm -hmm. and cisco is not a guy who locks himself in a room and sits in the dark because he's depressed he has been working he's been designing starships he's been fishing on the holodeck with jake he's still a very involved dad but as the prophets say, he still lives in that moment where his wife died. There are so many ways to portray depression and they're all true to someone, but Cisco is the type who tries to get on with it and doesn't even think of himself as being depressed. And yes. I like that. I think that's not a common take, especially for this era. Right, especially for this era where, you know, it's explicit for a reason in the 90s. Everything is forced on you almost Mm. in this time of television. The very special episode. (laughs) The very special episode, exactly. I mean, every time we talk about Cisco, we talk about how nuanced Mm. his character is. Mm. And... Again, it doesn't really appear that way on paper, so I give a lot of the credit to Avery Brooks. Absolutely. And the people who work with him. But it's really an incredible... Like, Cisco is an incredible character. If you just watch Deep Space Nine and only follow what he's doing in every scene, Yeah, it's yeah. really amazing to see how much depth there is. And he's absolutely a wonderful father for Jake, but that's that's true to life in many ways, that a lot Mm. of people can be depressed, but not appear that way to their loved ones. Mm. They almost are afraid to show that there's anything wrong with them. And I, as Jake gets older, and they have better and better communication about Mm. 
things beyond, you know, just regular father-son discussion. You know, they go through a war. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a lot of opportunity for heavy topics. Mm. And I love the way that Jake ages into his father's friend and yes. how Cisco starts to lean on Jake for some of that emotional balance and then when we get his dad too and I just yes. I love the three generations yes. the Cisco family is really great yes I know we often complain that Cisco is underappreciated by fic writers and I think racism is definitely a big part of it but I also like I could not begin to write Cisco he is such a complicated character right. and so I do understand why people would go oh oh gosh no I'm not I'm not ready for that I would con contrast Cisco's relationship with Jake where he's really appropriate where, compared with Yvette Picard and Jean-Luc where little Jean-Luc is really parentified. It's a really unhealthy situation. Certainly when a parent is dealing with mental illness, mm. especially to the depth that Yvette Picard is mm. clearly dealing with, they are selfish and they are destructive mm. and and they can be terrible parents and so it's not that it's a wrong depiction <laughs> or I, I necessarily incorrect or bad or damaging depiction but that she's such a manic pixie dream mom mm. that she's either the idea of the mom that Jean-Luc has to take care of or she's perfect. Yeah. His perfect yeah. mother. She doesn't idealized. get the nuance that Cisco gets even in his right. very first scenes. We really don't get to know her at all. There's no. there's nothing about Yvette Picard that is about Yvette Picard. <laughs> no, and the other thing is that the problem is really that Maurice, the husband and father, is allowing this to happen. He's not doing anything to support Yvette or to protect Jean-Luc. The card's parents are the worst. <laughs> Talk about bad parenting. <laughs> Don't be them. I'm willing to say that Maurice Picard is one of the worst dads in Star Trek. Maybe not as bad as Worf, but definitely worse than Sarek. <laughs> That's but right. Sarek tries. Yes. Which is why Sarek is ahead of both Worf and Maurice Picard. Sarek has produced almost against his will, three very successful children. One of those children is a very successful cult leader, but that's not the point. <laughs> anyway, Nog's injury you've cited as a particularly good depiction of depression, and I agree, and so do many military veterans. So, right. Yeah. It's a beautiful sort of, in that time of television, where you can just watch that one episode for mm. a full story about Nog's depression and how he crawls out of it with help of his friends. Yes, and particularly how he's using the holodeck to escape. And as much as I hate the Vic Fontaine everything, and I'm not a big holodeck fan, I have to say I think that is a really common behavior among lots of people with depression or Absolutely. any kind of mood disorder to turn to media and escapism and video gaming is particularly good for that because it does engage parts of the brain that really respond to that sort of input 
and you can put your feelings aside for a while and just hit buttons. I almost feel like the holodeck would be less satisfying in that regard than sitting down with my console and but who knows we don't have a holodeck to test it out sitting down with your console you have complete control Mm -hmm. even though there's a storyline and you lose and win but you're completely it's you (laughs) you're Mm -hmm. putting as much effort into it as you get whereas the holodeck is a little bit more of an improv yeah situation i think that that's why it's a little it's a different kind. It's a different kind of placebo effect, or you know, dopamine hit. Mm. But there's still a dopamine hit of having low-key, low-stress interactions, and in a setting where, yeah, if you say the wrong thing or if something happens that upsets you, you can reset the program and start again, and no one is going to know except the weird sentient singing hologram. Do you remember at the? beginning of the pandemic animal crossing came out yes and everyone (laughs) was like thank goodness this is exactly what i needed to just turn off the real world Mm. and focus on my sweet little island with my sweet little animals and build them all little houses and, and pick all their little flowers and and i completely agree i love animal crossing it's like my main game and there's something really to be said about that being a coping mechanism for trauma and it's easy to imagine getting lost in it. Mm. Which actually brings us really nicely to Night, which I watched just this week and I thought the Voyager crew would not survive a Melbourne lockdown because it's been two months and they're already going stir crazy and they can like have meals together and hang out with their friends. So, right? you know, they had it easy, but we do see that everyone is way too into the holodeck and fighting over holodeck time and for some reason tom has not replicated himself a playstation so (laughs) man tom paris with every gaming console right right that is a thing that definitely should have happened right but he's like weirdly stuck in the 30s yeah the 30s through the 60s i think it's just that whole star trek writer thing from that era where they were just really into retro entertainment where they could objectify women boo it's just weird how they they want their characters to keep hanging out in racist and sexist spaces but night is a really important episode to me it's kind of the very special episode where janeway is depressed but it came out in australia in early 1999 that was my final year of high school and i was really struggling and i did not actually get a diagnosis of depression and anxiety for another 18 months but when i did like i really identified with janeway in night and when i got that diagnosis i was like oh like my favorite character And so it was notable how the fandom reacted to Janeway's depression. And I'm going to read from Michelle Erica Green's review. Janeway sank from merely reckless to utterly incompetent. Can anyone imagine Picard's crew or Kirk's crew pulling a stunt like that to prevent the captain from, in essence, committing suicide? No, of course not, because Kirk and Picard would not have been written with a case of year-long PMS, topped with seasonal affective disorder. It's pretty disgusting that I am reduced to talking about a starship captain on these terms. I am also mystified. A woman in love would be a weak captain, but a chronically depressed woman with a martyr complex who refuses to seek help is not? 
Ugh. And I should say, Michelle Erica Green was not a troll. She was the leading feminist voice in fandom at the time. Where to begin? I think describing Janeway's actions and behaviour in season four as a year-long case of PMS is, like, that's a whole bingo square. (laughs) That is not feminist. (laughs) Can I put that out there? You know, I certainly have said things, particularly about Enterprise and Jolene Blaylock, in the name of feminism, which I now deeply regret. But the thing is, I have looked at Green's current work and I don't actually think she regrets any of this. So that review has really haunted me for all these years because I was like, oh, feminists don't approve of depression and mental illness. Like, I, I was very conservative. I was like, well, clearly I'm not a feminist. I hate feminists. They hate people like me. <sighs> Depressed people. That's yikes. <laughs> That's what I just want to say. Yeah. A few years ago, I learned that there was a whole thing in second wave feminism where disability and particularly chronic or mental illness were kind of treated like a betrayal of the cause, like your weakness is letting down other women and supporting the patriarchy. And I do think that that's, that historical ableism is where Green was coming from. But right, it's so... bad. Second wave feminism was a mistake. Yeah, second wave feminism is <laughs> definitely a mistake. Janeway was a lightning rod for... Mm controversy and opinions yes <laughs> and every single thing that Janeway did was called out as a problem that women had to answer for yeah because she was the first woman captain but the idea that Kirk and Picard's crew would not intervene to stop Kirk or Picard from doing things that they do Mm, when they mm. are too emotional is on its face ridiculous. Right. Because they do that all the time. Have you seen Star Trek? My God. There are (laughs) many episodes where the crew have secret meetings about what Picard is doing and Mm. how they have to intervene because he's going to get them all killed. (laughs) And as for Kirk... Like, I don't even, like, that's Spock's entire job. Right, right. That is 90% of Spock and McCoy's day job. That's all they do. Yeah. (laughs) This is keep Kirk in hand. Also, the idea that Janeway is the first and only suicidal captain. I know. Is also just completely ridiculous because it's almost part of... They, like, if you're going to be a, a Star Trek captain, you have to be a little bit suicidal when it comes to what yep. you're going to do. You have to be and... a secret adrenaline junkie and yeah, <laughs> a, a bit into the old self-sacrifice. I mean, have you seen a little movie called The Wrath of Khan? I also don't like the framing of Janeway's behaviour here as suicidal because, yes, her plan to send Voyager through the rift and then traverse the void alone in a shuttle is extreme and improbable, but it is the job of a captain to make sacrifices like this for her crew. When I say that every Star Trek captain is suicidal, I mean they're willing to go down with their ship. Yeah, yeah. Which is literally the job of a captain. 
Right. <laughs> it's it's like, part it's, of it's part of their duty. Yeah. It's it's a whole thing. And you know, I mean, okay, so let's skip ahead just briefly mm. to Captain Pike, allegedly the best captain ever made and ever seen in any Star Trek. He doesn't even have the best hair. And how his entire first season arc is literally about how he is going to sacrifice himself and it's the worst thing that ever happened to him but he's definitely going to do it because that's what he needs to do right right that's his characterization in the first season is him dealing with that sacrifice even hollow janeway goes down with her ship but you know so that's just wrong everything about that is wrong amazing Every word of what you just said was wrong. Now let's talk about how it's anti-feminist for women to, I guess, show weakness in any way. Again, it's that second wave thing. And I do think, because I read several of Green's reviews because I hate myself, but she does make a reasonable point that it's notable that the first three episodes of Voyager Season 5 are basically about making the women suffer. So you have Seven and her surrogate son who dies, and then you have Extreme Risk, which we're about to talk about, which is about Balana's ongoing depression. And meanwhile, none of the men of the show are getting this treatment. That is indeed sexist, but that does not mean that the mere depiction of a woman struggling with her emotional health is bad. So, counterpoint. She also didn't like counterpoint. Well, (laughs) but counterpoint to that statement. The original series didn't have a single episode of a woman dealing with depression or suffering because they didn't (laughs) have a single episode where women were important. Right. And Next Generation... I'm going to say 15% of this generation was about women being important. So the fact that Voyager had three episodes in a row, Mm. I understand how that can be seen as sexist, Mm -hmm. but counterpoint, (laughs) they are getting storylines. And therefore, it's, it's, maybe they shouldn't have been all in a row. Mm. Mm. But maybe that was the theme of the season. I am looking forward to exploring that theory as I'm finally back into blogging my Voyager rewatch. I definitely would have spaced those episodes out more, but also episode three of every season by now is Balana's episode. Balana. And this is the story that she needs. There's also a reference in Night. She's fighting with Tom and he says, unless it involves Klingon pain sticks, you wouldn't be interested. And... I know that Voyager was not really into the serialization at that time, but I have to believe that's foreshadowing for extreme risk and not just out of character writing, because this is the woman who in season three wanted nothing less than to do Klingon stuff recreationally. Whereas now when she is deeply depressed and whereas Janeway deals with it by retreating to her quarters and sitting in the dark, ruminating over her failures, Balana is pursuing risky activities and basically self-harm and what is Klingon culture but culturally endorsed self-harm self-harm Valana's arc throughout Mm. all of Voyager is very important to me Mm. I've said multiple times that I think it's an accident (laughs) that it's so good 
but it's a happy accident because it's so good. And I'm glad that we discussed depression as a disease versus depression as a symptom, because I, I do think that Belana actually suffers from a pretty obvious anxiety disorder mm. throughout all of mm. Voyager. It's introduced fully in Faces in the first season, mm. where we see human Belana completely unable to function or make decisions on her own. Yeah, yeah. Because she needs Klingon Belana to like push that in. And so I, I see, say that human Balana represents her anxiety disorder mm. and Klingon Balana represents unhealthy anger. Yes. One thing my mother said when I was a moody and sad teenager was that depression is what happens when you turn anger inwards, when you can't mm. express it. And the thing mm -hmm. is we're told that Balana has a temper and we see it occasionally. But really, the worst thing she does is offer sarcasm. And, and so if she has this alleged temper, it's completely suppressed. It's turned inwards against herself. And so, of course, she's depressed. And of course, the loss of the Marquis is the trigger that tips her over into a full-blown self-destructive depression because she was always on that precipice. And, and as you say, right. she has so much anxiety about her place in any culture, in any family, and even as late as lineage, she still doesn't quite feel like people are going to, you know, accept her daughter because that is the anxiety that has dogged her her whole life. I blame her dad. It's, it's a childhood trauma yeah. because of how her parents broke up, because mm -hmm. of what each of them did after that. And affected the way that she makes connections. Mm. Paris and Torres get the longest relationship in Star Trek that, mm -hmm. you know, we get to see so much of it. There's Troy and Riker, but we never saw them meet. Right, yeah. You know, O'Brien and Keiko, but Keiko wasn't a main character. What I mean is between these characters and all on screen and mm. an important part of their growth as individuals is related to their relationship. Mm. And the reason that I say Milan is, is done so well, and this is, I think that reviewer with three names <laughs> would disagree with me and would dislike this, but is the fact that she's still anxious mm. in the seventh season. She's still dealing with her disorder. She is still not out of that phase. She's still willing to genetically <laughs> manipulate her daughter yeah, and yeah. turn off the doctor to do it. So she is not in a, you know, I'm loved and therefore I am I am safe space. Right. You know, as far into the story as the final season. Right. And I think that is realistic. <laughs> you don't suffer from these anxiety issues from childhood and have it just be waved mm. at the end of the episode. Mm. Extreme risk. People say, and it's not wrong to say that it happens too quickly. Everything that happens in extreme risk is like too fast. We are introduced to the problem. They figure out where the problem came from and the problem is solved right. in the, in the yeah. 42 minutes. But at the end of that episode, she's sitting alone in the mess room, eating her pancakes, 
by herself. Mm. And while she did get her act together and help design the Delta Flyer and is now on a road to I'm going to get back into my job and my relationships instead of punishing myself over and over again Mm. on the holodeck, she's not healed. She's not fully recovered. No, no. Can we just talk, like, this is off topic, but can we just point out that building the Delta Flyer was Seven of Nine's idea and Balana did the actual work and Tom basically hung around and made suggestions because he gets all the credit and it was the women who did the work. But also, I think it's really problematic that Balana's whole mental state, all of her dysfunction is linked to her biracial identity. Like, Star Trek does this a lot. It's gross. It's racist. And yet, at the same time... Fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even if Balana was a purely human character and she had all these traits, I would think she was incredibly well done for the era. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I I talk about my love of Balana often, Mm. and multiple people have said, well, except for this trope or how she represents this or how she Mm, deals mm. with that. And it's like, yeah, you are not wrong Mm. about those issues. She is a angry Latina. She is a sad mulatto. Like those are problems. Oh yeah. They should be brought up in discussion Mm. of her, Mm. but for the nineties is another nuanced you know, representation that yeah. didn't exist before her. And and I think mm-hmm. that that should be celebrated, even though we do have to also acknowledge flaws. I mean, Voyager is super flawed. Oh, God, yes. Voyager is my favorite and also super flawed. Yeah, we are not like Deep Space Nine fans out here claiming that our show is the best. It's doing its best. No, it's not even doing its best. But, you know, Janeway deals with depression, Seven of Nine is neuroatypical, and Baylana has depression and anxiety. And I think that's really cool. I don't know what Kess's problem is. I'm sure if she'd stuck around longer, we would have found one for her. I understand why a reviewer might find this troubling, but to me, it really resonates. Right. Especially, like compared with Enterprise and the whole post 9-11 situation where it's just like men everywhere men and like T'Pol's mental illness storylines there are really frustrating to me as opposed to the catharsis that I feel with the Voyager women because it really is like you have the first female Vulcan character and her arc is about how she's really bad at repressing emotion she's too emotional can you hear yourselves no, they die. There's no one record saying everyone in charge of crafting enterprise. No, does not know what they're doing. They they do it. They think it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to say, so I I post nine eleven. I include Enterprise and I include the Kelvin films. Yeah, I think that's a good call. And. I think they both suffer from this weird, you know, step backward into, Mm. and I put an exclamation point at the end of each of my little things, anger, sex, avoiding communication. Yes. 
And it's not even like a healthy and mature depiction of sex. It's just like, ooh, manly men have sex. Women are scantily clad. Look at their navels. I just finished watching season one of Stargate Atlantis, which is very much a successor to Enterprise in that regard. And it's very frustrating. So I'm particularly annoyed about the whole early 2000s media landscape right now. Yes. I do think that in both Enterprise and in the Kelvin films, they're clearly, you know, Enterprise has, once we get into the post 9-11 phase, it is blatantly yeah. about 9-11. And Kelvin is also about 9-11. Like, yeah. I love the Kelvin films. And the thing is that, you know, so is Man of Steel. So sure, like, sure. So many films that were made in this era are about sudden horrible attacks that we didn't see coming and then we have to deal with and we deal with them poorly. Yeah. We deal with them by taking it out on the wrong people mm -hmm. and by getting very, very angry, looking for revenge, turning to empty sex. Mm and other distractions mm. and not talking about it and the thing is both enterprise and the kelvin films really sidelined women not entirely because obviously they both had really interesting female characters and i really love zoe saldana's uhura mm -hmm. but with the exception of beyond they weren't really essential to the plot and enterprise obviously has its whole issues yes other than and so Gonna go to my second point, yes. sex. Exclamation Both, mark. Yes, sex exclamation mark. Both in Enterprise and in the Kelvin films, it requires the hot lady mm -hmm. to heal the sad angry boy yes. who lost everything. Yes. With their womanly wiles. The magical healing vagina. In Enterprise, it is text. Yeah. It is not even pretending by any stretch of the imagination. It is Trip is angry and depressed because Florida got destroyed and he lost his family. Mm -hmm. And T'Pol shows up and says, I'm going to sex it away for you. And then in the beginning of season four, when Archer is having his man feelings, Captain Erica Hernandez offers her vagina to the service of the fleet and sexes it away for him. And in both cases, these female characters deserve much more interesting relationships. And the other thing both Enterprise and most of the Kelvinverse films feature, notably, is scenes where the main female characters strip down to their underwear. Yep. Mm. Just because. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like super important for all of the female characters to be seen in their skivvies. Right, right. Now to be fair, Enterprise also shows every other character in their underwear. This is true. Uh, honestly, I have a new appreciation for Scott Bakula's thighs, thanks to Enterprise. <laughs> As for anger, I mentioned here that it's the resurgent of the PTS Admiral. Yes. In Calvinverse, we get Admiral, Admiral Marcus. Marcus, who is just straight up a Badmiral yeah. yeah. who yeah. is dealing with his trauma in the worst way possible. As is tradition. 
That is a tradition. And then you have avoiding communication. And most of these tropes Star Trek Beyond managed to avoid. But we do have the whole Spock is going to break up with Uhura but still put a tracking device on her rather than deal with his feelings or have a conversation with her. And it's extra ironic because her whole thing is communication. Right. Although also, you know, it is in Into Darkness, they have the same problem. Yeah. And oh, oh, wait, did you know that in Star Trek 2009, they also have the same problem? <laughs> so it's not just in Beyond, it's they, that's their relationship. Mm. Mm. It's like, do I really ship it or <laughs> do I just like the idea of it? I love them. Yes. You know, I am on the record as being super pro Spock and Uhura, but I also acknowledge that they have a lot of problems. And the relationship is much more about Spock than Uhura. Yes, exactly. Beyond. Like you said, Beyond repairs a lot of things that are imperfect in the first two films. But they don't completely fix the whole PTS bad moral thing, because even though Idris Elba is not an admiral... It's still a guy who is just completely failing to deal with his feelings. With his traumas and then takes it out on everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, destroys many, many things. Sad man smash. Right. I'm, I'm upset that he smashes himself and they don't save him. I think yeah. that that would be a stronger and not to be like a real Star Trek person, but a more Star Trek mm. film mm. if he had in that final discussion and uh, battle with Kirk if you know Kirk says I'm the opposite of you I do everything to save people instead of everything to destroy people if then he had come to the light and helped him save Mm. the Mm. Yorktown instead of breaking into a million pieces of sadness yeah and then we come to the present the Star Trek Renaissance And I love your note here that Discovery and Picard have explicit storylines about trauma and recovery, and Lower Decks and Prodigy have implicit storylines about trauma and recovery, and Strange New Worlds reverts to anger, sex, avoiding communication, because Strange New Worlds is really Star Trek for fanboys, in the way that Enterprise and the first two Kelvinverse films were. Right, and fanboys don't want to deal with trauma or recovery. Fanboys are the people who say that Star Trek Discovery has too much Mm. communication. Yeah. Which is, I don't get you. Look, setting aside the timing issues for the revelation that, you know, Joe Psy character has this trauma that he needs to talk about right now on the bridge, I don't really have a problem with Discovery in that regard. Right, yeah, so... I'm not going to say that Discovery, and certainly not Picard. <laughs> I'm never going to say that Picard deals with trauma or recovery in a well-done way. Ever. Mm. I will say the exact opposite. <laughs> However, they are explicitly dealing with it. They are seeing it head-on. They are talking about it in actual terms. Like you said, Picard literally says in the text, depression can Mm, kill you mm, mm. and therefore should be taken seriously and also 
should be discussed. Like, yes. the, the crazy thing about Picard's storyline is that somehow Captain Picard went through a very Victorian childhood <laughs> and then ended up in the 24th century and became captain of a starship. I don't know how that happened. There must have been a wormhole in the middle of his French estate. <laughs> but that's pretty much what happened. I want to know how he sat next to Deanna Troy for seven years and she didn't pick up a whiff of this. Like, I don't want to say well, that Picard has ruined her character, but I have questions. The interesting part about Deanna Troy is that the problem with Next Generation mm. is that it does not develop its women characters. Neither mm. Deanna Troy nor Beverly Crusher gets as much attention as anyone else. Including, like, you know, Q. Or Barkley. Or, or Barkley. People who are in just a handful of episodes, mm. as opposed to literally the main characters. Only in the later seasons do we get anything even beginning to get into what they do. The first season of Picard's episode, Nepenthe, is mm. the best Deanna Troy has ever been seen. And before that, it was First Contact. Yep. The movie. So they did her dirty in general. We, mm. we have yet to see Beverly Crusher's Nepenthe. But the silver lining to that dark cloud <laughs> is that we can imagine, we can grasp <laughs> what we now know about Picard and his terrible childhood into the next generation. And we can see the, all of the scenes that we don't see of Deanna trying to tease this out of him and, mm. and not getting very far because mm. Picard doesn't want to talk about it. And also, oh my God, oh my God. Also, because she was raised by her mother, she is really reluctant to probe and to use her empathy to violate his privacy. So right. she doesn't push it that she way. She is waiting for him to yeah. tell her. Yeah. For him to trust her enough to mm. tell her. And the good thing is that... As the series progresses, we do see them get closer. Yes. And when he goes through his whole Borg thing and after those events, he does open up to Deanna more than mm. he does mm. in the first three seasons. And she does know some things about his family. Right. I can imagine, like, again, we have to, like, put this weird Victorian sensibility onto Picard and say... He was not ready to deal with all of this until he was apparently eighty, and mm. and now he's gonna now he's gonna gonna deal with it. And yeah, you know, okay. Look, I respect his repression skills. He did it, so that like that's good. It's okay if you get to it in the end. Do you think like after the mind meld, Sarek went home and he was like, "Man, I thought I was a bad dad." I will think about. The fact that Sarek and Picard shared basically their souls mm. for mm. a while there, mm. all that, a lot. Like yeah. that episode, I think that the writers didn't realize the ramifications. No, because also then Picard was assimilated like a couple of months later. So in theory, the Borg know everything that Sarek knows, which means right. Seven of Nine knows about the whole Michael Burnham situation. Wild. I know. I've been I, thinking I about this that. a lot. Yeah. I, I kind of love that. 
Well, I mean, I've always had this this sort of, you know, strange idea that now Picard sort of has this, this mm. understanding of Sarek and understanding of Vulcans that mm. a lot of people still don't have. Even, you know, we, we go all the way into the future and Discovery and, and they're still learning things about the Nivar. Yeah. But I think that's why he cares about the Romulans so much. Yes, through Sarek, he sort of understands Spock's perspective. And the whole thing with Sarek and Spock is that the last time they spoke, they argued about the fate of the Romulans. But it means that Picard and Sarek share that foundation and he must understand where Spock's logic is coming from and Spock's emotions about the Romulans. And I think it's a really good version of generational trauma, Mm. the Sarek to Spock, you know pipeline (laughs) in that it's not that Sarek hates the Romulans so much and can't handle it it's Mm. that he is conditioned Mm. you know he's already broken all of his rules to care about humans yeah And, and now he's being expected to go you know another mile and care about Romulans when they're the ones who left you know, it's like they walked down on me. Mm. Why am I the one who has to welcome them back? They left, but also when they returned, when we found out who and what they were, they then spent the next few generations attacking and killing, yeah. trying to the, the murder federation me that I personally. care about. <laughs> like, yeah, trying to yeah. murder my son. Yeah, like, I, I take it personally. I, I understand, but Spock, who had such a difficult childhood, Mm. despite loving parents. Both of his Mm. parents honestly love Spock. Yes, yes. Eric might not be able to show it, but he loves his children. Mm. And, but he had this, you know, really troubled childhood, troubled young adulthood that we're now watching. And then he, you know, repressed himself for Mm. ever, for Mm. decades. But also Spock had this difficult childhood and then he left Vulcan just as the Romulans did. Right, exactly. So he relates to that. Mm. And I think, you know, when we see it in Star Trek VI too, where he has compassion for the Klingons, Mm. I think that Spock understands, like, he leads with compassion because that's what he wants from everybody else. Yeah, he treats the Klingons and the Romulans the way that he wishes his family had treated him. Right. That brings us back to this whole, like, there are studies where people who have difficult childhoods and are connected with someone who can help them through it tend to go into helping professions. Right. And it's because, you know, there's also people who have difficult childhoods and no one was there for them also go into helping professions. Mm. That reality you know shapes you and so i i understand spock's compassion that he has throughout you know from from tos on every version of spock and there's like seven of them now (laughs) every spock we have is absolutely super compassionate and everyone tells him that he doesn't understand feelings it's just so ironic to me and By the time he leaves our universe and reaches the Kelvin universe, his past of depression and struggle is so far behind him. He is an old man and he is using his experiences for good. 
And I think that right, is he, just peak Star Trek. He knows who he is, and he wants to help other people self-actualize. So, yeah. That kind of brings me to your last point. How is the representation of depression on Star Trek helpful, and how is it harmful? I think that there are certain characters, I think, so Spock is one of them, Seven of Nine is one of them, mm. who have really incredible storylines mm. where you can see their growth mm. and it's not the snap of your fingers it's not the end of the episode resets mm. it's actually throughout they they get an arc mm. the card the card also you know yes. as much as i sometimes as as I it's a silly arc about picard <laughs> he certainly gets really good storylines dealing with his stuff yes are they executed well absolutely no. not <laughs> then that brings us into the harmful parts right and you know part of it is the episodic stuff where if it's not an arc mm. you know it can be a problem and there are exceptions to that like nog but the idea that a small child's parent dies and they fix it by making friends with Worf, and then at the end of the episode they say oh you actually have to deal with your sadness and they say oh thank you and move mm -hmm. on with their mm -hmm. lives mm. that's not so great no and then the poor depictions not seeing Yvette Picard as a person but yeah. only as a as yeah. a memory and I, again it's about Picard this, this the show is about Picard and it's about how he deals with things and so it's not about her it's not, but it could have been. <laughs> they like, could have expanded Yvette's character to the betterment of Picard's. And instead, by making her so simplistic and unnuanced, the manic pixie dream mom, they right. diminished Picard himself. And talk about harmful. I had to tell my therapist my feelings about Star Trek Picard season two. And she was like, maybe it would be helpful if you don't keep doing this. If you don't watch the next season if you don't talk about it or think about it because I just get into this spiral of anger and sadness that this story was so badly done and that's not mm -hmm. healthy right I also think that harm comes from fan reactions like Janeway's depiction in Night is great but then the stigma around mental health is brought in by fans like Michelle Erica Green and even today people on Reddit saying oh Janeway's too unstable to be a captain. Mm -hmm. Yeah and the pacing of Star Trek Discovery mm. is a continued problem. <laughs> what I was going to say is in Picard also Rene Picard is introduced as this interesting character who is dealing with depression who has to get past it in order mm. to uh, fulfill her destiny and she's kind of a manic pixie dream astronaut astronaut as well she's introduced with a lot of promise that goes absolutely nowhere because her trauma is also about Picard. <laughs> yes. literally everything that happens is actually about Picard. <laughs> which again i get it it's the title but also mm. i relate more to renee and mm. to yvette mm. than to jean-luc i relate more to seven and seven is sidelined in yeah yeah you know so it's like Raffi is mm. like nobody gets to have the spotlight ever other and than Jean-Luc Picard. I am really struggling with 
Picard era seven as I rewatch Voyager because it's clear to me that she is basically by this era by the end of the century masking full time and she doesn't seem happy she doesn't seem to really know if she wants to be in a relationship she doesn't seem to feel safe in her own skin unless she is pretending to be as human as possible and I think that is a metaphor for how neuroatypical women are expected to act but I also think it's a kind of psychological violence being inflicted on her Mm. and it's really sad for me that this is perceived as some kind of incredible glow up for Seven as a character like Mm -hmm. Yes, she's wearing better clothes and she has pockets, but her character is so much more simplistic now than she was in the 90s. And the promise of Seven in the 90s, Mm. the promise of that character by the end of that series has been squandered somewhat. Yeah. Because she hasn't healed. She hasn't recovered. She hasn't self-actualized she is running and she is angry Mm. and she is dealing with avoiding communication Mm. (laughs) or leaning on people in the second season her entire arc is about how she's unable to talk to Rafi and tell her how she really feels Mm. and that's what she was like in season seven of Voyager and people are going to hate me for saying this but she opened up to Chakotay (laughs) sooner Mm -hmm. than she opened up to Rafi. I mean, and that's what's the point of having a starter boyfriend if you don't retain the lessons that you learned from him? Right. Exactly. Like, I stand a bisexual queen, but I also think she is asexual and shouldn't be in a relationship. Or at the very least, she is aromantic. I'm going to say something mean about Patrina Cornwell now. So I just wanted to warn all of the listeners. <laughs> so we can sit down. Ahead of time. Yes. Everyone. Yes. Okay. So in the second season mm-hmm. of Star Trek Discovery, she has a therapy session with Hugh Culber. Yes. And it is kind of beloved. Oh, fandom. yes. Yes, I love that scene. But I also think that it's a bit of, it's your classic 90s era one and done therapy. It's a fortune cookie therapy session in my Which is weirdly appropriate, given who I (laughs) should be. Which is weirdly appropriate. (laughs) And so, you know, she she says, love is a choice. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to say, it sounds nice the first time you hear it. Mm-hmm. But when you think about what those words actually mean, mm-hmm. it's not a good look. Look, I choose to believe, A, that she would not say that to someone who is, for example, in an abusive relationship. And B, my headcanon is that she herself was really struggling in that year and doing an oh. amazing job of hiding it. But she does blow herself up at the end of the season. But if she was still around and, and we got more of her and we got more therapy and we She's got... She's around in my heart. I, I know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it's sort of like that, you know, I can, as I do with Deanna and Jean-Luc, mm-hmm. I can add the rest of her story mm-hmm. in, into mm-hmm. the background and I can understand it and I can be not not be angry with her and I can believe that, no, she's my favorite Admiral forever. But 
when I think about that scene, and as you said, the fandom reaction, like the fandom mm. reaction is so negative towards Janeway and Knight, and the fandom reaction is so positive towards Cornwell and Culber in that scene and in that the second season of Discovery is my least favorite. And I don't like the idea that therapy is about quips. Yeah. And yeah. About, you know, just just be positive about your life and mm. everything will be okay. Mm. I don't like that. No, that's not the, no. That's not the Star Trek colon therapy that I want. <laughs> so. I choose to believe that a few hours later when she had finished with the work that interrupted their conversation, she sent Hugh an email going, please remember I am not currently a therapist. Here are some names of people I recommend. And as we were saying, all through season two, Zoom therapy. (laughs) Right. And we do still see, what's his name? David Cronenberg is acting as a therapist for Hugh in season four. Like, this is still an ongoing deal for him. Yeah, which is good. The Hugh part of it is good. The Hugh, because Hugh, you know, he acknowledges that he needs help, that mm. even though he's a physician, he has been through this really kind of horrible thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he needs to talk about it with someone. Mm. And there's no one else. <laughs> so <laughs> you get to be my therapist, even though you absolutely should have uh, said, no, I'm going to refer you to somebody else. I mean, maybe they all died in season one. (laughs) We lost a lot of people. I do believe that the reason there are so many bad morals in TOS era Star Trek is that Katrina Cornwell was the last one standing and she blew up. That's right. All of the, all of the counselors died. Yeah. Elizabeth Dana, (laughs) dead. Dead. Yep. It's it's because they're mostly women. The whole profession got fridged. Oh no. They are all women. Mm -hmm. Unless you count Culber and Cronenberg. And the bird guy from Lower Decks, who is explicitly not very good at his job. Yeah. Which I have to say, I do kind of enjoy (laughs) the depiction of people seeking therapy and then realising that this guy is not for them. Like, obviously it's a problem that Migliamo is not very good at his job, but I do enjoy it as a running gag. Yeah. I mean, as a running gag, but also that is very realistic. Yeah. And it's actually a great thing to have, I need help and I try you out and this is a bad fit and so I'm going to leave. Because a lot of people think they can't do that. Yes, yes. A lot of people get stuck in this idea that you know, if they're so desperate that they're in therapy to begin with after all this time or whatever, you know, oh, I can't have a stiff upper lip anymore and so I'm going to go. And they settle for the first person that they see. Mm. Or they simply don't have the resources to spend money trying out yeah. therapists. Yeah. yeah. Like, let's not talk about healthcare. Costs. Yeah, God, no. That'll just make me super angry. <laughs> Yes. On that note, and that's a nice segue into next week's episode. That's right. Read us out. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram, all at antimatterpod. Instagram is the best. Follow us there. And yeah. write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. 
If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And tell your friends. Join us in two weeks when we will be discussing the TNG Season 1 episode, The Arsenal of Freedom. Shout out to the random episode generator for giving us a good one. <laughs> I'm super excited Me to discuss too. the Arsenal of Freedom. Me too. Such a great first season episode. <laughs>